0: Born in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and raised in New York City, Mark Menon graduated with a degree in history from Princeton University, where he also taught ceramics under Toshiko Takaize. He began to carve stone in Italy in 1984 and worked there for three years, executing commissions and preparing for solo shows in New York. From 1989 to 1993, he worked in Paris. The scale of his sculpture has evolved to giant landscape and architectural works, often involving hundreds of tons of granite prompting a move from New York to a large indoor-outdoor atelier in Bethlehem, Connecticut, where he lives with his wife, writer Marcia DeSantis, and two children. Mark Menon, welcome to The Creative Process. Oh,
1: thank you.
2: Uh, well, we're in uh, one of your studios, The mm-hmm. Moment, and you're just showing me...
1: Oh, so yeah, this is where we keep a new tool who's uh, kind of our beast of burden as we work uh, I got this to hollow out pieces of mine in onyx that I've been making and uh, where I've been hollowing them out myself but it's uh, it's terrible work so I'd rather this machine do that while I carve the positive still like a hand carver mm-hmm. and, um, and a side uh, um, effect of this machine is we've Uh, collected, um, a great patron and myself, have collected uh, about a dozen artists who are great American sculptors who are uh, born in the 40s or 30s even, Mm -hmm. uh, who wanted to carve stone, never have, and who I believe are great uh, hand uh, modelers and wood carvers, uh, whose work would translate really good in stone. So um, we're making pieces for them and for the park with this robot. Mm-hmm. Half the time, and the other half the time, I'm using it to hollow out these onyx pieces. So.
2: Wow! So that you can you can work on the, the you know the, the fine detail work. Yeah, it's it's interesting. yeah. Well,
1: what, what the for yeah for myself? There's no fineness at mm-hmm. all. Like this, I would never have this machine do something I couldn't do myself. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I am a faster carver than this machine is. But mm-hmm. what it does for the other sculptors uh, is um, it guarantees them the proportions of their model. And mm-hmm. me or uh, one of my assistants will finish mm-hmm. quickly but efficiently what the surface and last skin of the piece would be. Mm-hmm. And uh, so far, the artists have. Uh, great faith that that'll mm-hmm. be <laughs> executed um, with fidelity, and uh, you know, and it's kind of an interesting process. I'm also preparing for my dotage when I can't lift a hammer anymore, sure. and um, you know, I'd like to be uh, sculpting till the last breath. And this will probably be some help, but in the meantime, I'm not using it for myself or for my.
2: Yeah, homework. we should emphasize that because we were just talking uh, <clears throat> this morning that you're one of you know that one of the few remaining sculptors who is, like, doing this work on stone by hand, you know, as people advance, Mm -hmm. this is just, like, one aspect that you're helping facilitate works. Yeah. But, yes.
1: And also, uh, if I do do a body of work using this, um, it would be subordinate work to the hand. I mean, I I would do, if I were to make an addition, I don't find bronze very compelling for what I do, Mm -hmm. so I might use this to make an addition... Of uh, work later, but it still would be subordinate to hands-on work that I do.
2: Right, and, and so uh, we should say you you work here and uh, in in Bethlehem, uh, mm-hmm. Connecticut, and that the, the the sense of the material, the sense is very important to you. The sense of well, yeah, I
1: mean, I think direct contact with the material should be important to every sculptor, because I think uh, once you lose that, it becomes a second-hand process. I mean, it's one of the reasons the casting process isn't so interesting to me, um, just because the final uh, you know, product, the final piece, uh, has not been touched by the artist. I mean, there's no relationship with the mind that conceived the piece or designed and you know, I, I think something's lost. Uh, when that happens, and it becomes something else. I mean, <clears throat> it it becomes a piece of design that's executed by something else. Because to sculpt is a verb, and we we can't really change that. Uh, you know, it, to make something soup to nuts is, I think, still a much more exciting thing to uh, experience, and that's what we're. <clears throat> doing, you're not just looking at something like sculpture is not just an image. Mm. Um, it can be a place, mm. but it's not just an image that that is absorbed like that. I think it's an experience, and sure. a, uh, thus the need for you know an artist's physical input.
2: Right, and mm-hmm. then we've just been at, because we're doing these interviews as, as well as celebrating um, Palabalos and the Five Senses Festival, mm-hmm. and there you have uh, another monumental work, and you describe some of that and some of your other public, uh, public artwork. Sure, how yeah. How they react with the landscape and...
1: Yeah, I mean, those things are... <clears throat> I mean, what sculpture has become as the landscape becomes sort of the dominant... Uh, uh, context for all my work is um, you end up not just carving an object but carving a place and that might become more involved with architectural design or architecture itself but, um, but still the act of carving and the rapport with the material and, and how it's manipulated uh, is the sub-narrative to the larger narrative of the landscape. So uh, like in the case of the cave, um, the you know the commission was to make a space a grotto type of thing and um, um, we yeah uh, <clears throat> you know, it's the five senses festival so it's the third of um, the five senses that I'm depicting so the the stage I don't know if you've seen is this uh, oculus this round shape. Uh, that uh, uh, represents vision. <coughs> a series of inlays that also have this kind of oculus uh, shape. And the, the natural shape of an amphitheater is um, that of a sound wave or even an ear. And that's, you know, it's the receiver of whatever information the oculus puts out there as, as a performance happens. And then the cave is about uh, taste.
2: Yeah, so these things that you're looking at, I wasn't thinking about it, the, sh- the cave, the, what, you know, the, what are you absorbing for the shape of the ear? What?
1: It, yeah. Yes. Well, so, uh, I mean, the, the natural architecture mm-hmm. of an amphitheater mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it even looks like that Wi-Fi mm-hmm. signal. I mean, yeah. it is this sort of sound wave, um, you know, uh, form, even though it's a negative form, that's... Uh, uh, formed in terms of acoustics and receiving sound. So that's somehow taking care of um, expressing, um, you know, hearing, the sense of hearing. Uh, And the cave is about taste. So you're walking into this cave. Uh, The ramp into the cave is this giant tongue. It's this pink Mm -hmm. granite. Uh, And the inside of the cave, though it looks like a pink granite padded cell, Mm -hmm. is uh, sort of like the the belly of the whale I mean or the mouth of some uh, grotesque like a lot of the landscape gardens in uh, Italy like or something like that so you know and and it's it's kind of all these things Mm -hmm. uh, that's cross-pollination of of metaphors and then there's two uh, giant plinths that are cores that will have uh, uh, one thing I did a lot 25 years ago. I probably carved about 600 noses out of different marbles. So that this is all, That's the easy part. <laughs> and it's just a lot of fun. I think in terms of statuary and the history of sculpture, these appendages that absorb the sensory things, noses, ears, tongues, uh, fingers, uh, they're all the things that break off of statuary. They're all the things that are kind of laid to waste, that disappear. And its it's a... Perhaps uh, it's probably a sad symbol of us losing our own sensory, um, uh, you know, sensitivity towards things in a digital age, in a machine age, Um, and that's part of what the festival's goals are, to kind of reconnect ourselves with uh, nature and sensory, um, you know.
2: Just to make us feel alive, or be grateful for alive, yeah. alive all our senses. yeah, and
1: have some kind of contact with nature. i i think aside from being local, that's what made me a uh, a good fit for, yes. uh, you know, building these things and carving these things.
2: And that many of us think of although I'm sure it's something you think about often in your work. Is that you know stillness of stones, but they're alive.
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. And particularly granite mm-hmm. still has a, a minuscule degree of radioactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not to any dangerous uh, yes. degree. As everybody's countertop is made out of the stuff. Yeah. But it's. Um, but no. I mean, it's it's truly alive. And it, it was once a kinetic material mm-hmm. when it was uh, a, an igneous stone flowing like magma. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, all these geological. Uh, uh, aspects are are not only make us feel small I know that's Mm -hmm. a thing you (laughs) like um but you know it also it makes us feel small in a time context Uh makes us feel small with scale and uh like a giant giant uh sculptural uh project or journey Mm
3: -hmm.
1: is still small uh in the context of nature or larger (laughs) architecture so you know it's a
2: so, yeah, no, it is you, know, you bring up history and time, and then in your own work and, and the works of sculpture that you admire or even other artworks that you admire,
1: mm-hmm.
2: are you attracted to how time changes them?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it's, you know, uh, granted itself, uh, things can grow on it, mm-hmm. things, uh, but it, it's, it doesn't really erode Yes. Uh, certainly not acid rain which is a problem with travertines and marbles uh-huh. um, I think they're not even spec'd for architecture anymore yeah. um, granite is, won't change it's, its appearance, I mean, for example the Egyptian heads at the Louvre yes. have one side that's eroded, the only thing that got it was like a couple thousand years of sandstorms, but, yeah. but it wasn't the weather, you know, yeah. it's um, and I like how our our process of reducing stone mimics nature. Like sandblasting is like a sandstorm, and uh, heat um, to form the granite, for example, and uh, shape it is much like its own history of being a melted magma. Um, yeah. There's uh, and you know just the beating and general violence of the uh, process is. Uh, what geology is all about—geological, geological history. Ah, so. oh,
2: yes. Yeah. So you feel sometimes when you're not to be mystical about it, but you feel somehow you're in conversation with these like weather systems. You're like controlling a weather systems. Oh system. yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That's
1: actually sp- specifically uh, more interesting than how I was approaching it. But yeah, oh. it's, uh, <laughs> no, but, I think
2: uh, I think it's as lovely the physicality, and I think that it's true. It's something that we've all. Have, have to think about now in our, our digital age with all of its advances yeah. and how maybe it can save us you know you know labor saving uh, devices it's it's nice i'm sure you know hoists and things like this for all great advances too you know oh yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah well
1: i can only make a, a piece as large as my forklift can carry yeah. so it's a th- those sort of limitations are they're part of our growth as mm-hmm. a um, you know we are a small industry eventually mm-hmm. you know when you when you're working uh, with, um, you know, a lot of my problems are construction problems, a lot Mm -hmm. of my problems are engineering problems, Mm -hmm. and, and, um, you know, and then you get to carve. But I mean, there's a lot of components that are uh, invisible in, you know, making a lot of these larger projects, Mm -hmm. and and you sort of have to be the, the conductor of...
2: The preparation the, is a big thing. I don't want to talk about myself. I have no real experience of sculpture, but I did study mm-hmm. fresco. And so, well, it's a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like all the prep, that the the painting part seems very quick. Right, and then you have a day to write yeah, it well like until that. the plaster. But the whole uh, preparation, so that's why I could have to move on because I get impatient. But I yep. did want to go back to that thing because we were talking about time. We are talking about the digital age. And it is something that it seems that people are, and going back to the five senses, mm. so feeling unhappy or not quite in their bodies. Yeah. And so what you do with sculpture, I think, and these these sculptures that you can enter, that you can yeah. engage with, you, it's uh, reminding us of our yes, we are bodies.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we're also just material. I mean, uh. like uh, granite. You know, we yeah. we uh, our bones are the same thing as what marble and limestone is. I mean, we're calcium carbonate. Yeah. And um, you know, and we're we're we are just you know the earth is one thing, and we're all mm-hmm. we are parasites feeding off of the yeah. the earth, you know I mean we are uh uh you know we're, we're fungus, you know? Yes. <laughs> but uh um, I used to joke with a wood carver friend that trees are just a fungus that grow on giant stones and oh,
2: the mountains yes. but, no, that's um, beautiful but it's, it's good, it's very humbling to think that yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, especially for the wood carver
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you have in in terms of your rituals or when you begin like, I said at the beginning of your process or in the middle of a, a sculpture like it's just I'm wondering is there something like you folks it seems like you might have something you remind yourself before you begin
1: Yeah well I mean I, I think every narrative that I've had with stone at least in the last, 25 years, has been to kind of undermine what stone sculpture has been, like to, whether it's uh, making a very hard material be a very soft, fleshy thing, or whether it's um, making something that we perceive as dense, uh, hollow, and uh, something that ordinarily only captures light from the outside to be illuminated from the inside. Or rather than be an object, um, which stone sculpture uh, is usually throughout Mm -hmm. history, um, you know, be a place, Mm -hmm. be uh, something you walk into, lie down in. Mm -hmm. uh, Even to the point where, I mean, I... You could call a lot of my work uh, furniture, uh, but it's... uh, I don't have a problem with that. A a great piece of furniture is a greater accomplishment than a shitty sculpture. (laughs) You know, so it's... uh, but the, its connection to the body mm-hmm. uh, also we puts, we
2: yeah, well, yeah and,
1: it, and it puts it in the figurative realm. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, I'm, I think highly trained as a figurative carver, yeah. and most of my small work involves that and that sort of detail. But the larger work, sort of incorporates the body as a um, something that needs to have a direct relationship with the earth. And we we jokingly said a lot. Um, these beds that I made that you can lie down in yes. are sort of a tidy way of rolling in the mud. I mean, because mm-hmm. you're, you're lying inside of a earth material. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think you can feel the energy from a material like wood or stone.
2: I just should say, we just see. I don't That's know. sweet. Oh. <laughs> the, the birds just came outside a window We're looking. And... So that's nice that you can have a sculpture that's an experience. It's true. It's not, mm-hmm. not something you observe outside yourself, something that you enter. Uh,
1: yeah.
2: You can then think about what kind of dreams people dream, you know, and Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. Know. And a lot of them are just to look up at the sky, you know, yes. to lie down and, yeah. and do that. But, um, yeah, and, you know, therefore, I think if that's the experience that you want other people to have is this physicality with what you've made. Uh, why would I divorce myself from the physicality of making the right. stone? So I'm not disparaging people who use technology or uh, have other people execute their work.
2: Yeah.
1: What? No, that's not true. I am disparaging. Yeah. But I, I well, will say this. Out but, it, but they're, yeah, out. they're it, missing Yeah, it's out. their loss. It's mm-hmm. their loss to not have a connection with their own work. And it's like sort of what we were discussing before, um, I can't imagine a circumstance where you can be as good a carver as you can be, or as good a stone conceiver or thinker um, in New York. I love New York; it's mm-hmm. it's oh, yeah. my home. I grew up there. I love mm-hmm. going there, um, and uh, my best colleagues, um, mm-hmm. mostly painters, mm-hmm. are there. But yeah, because um,
2: they don't need as much space. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, exactly
1: right. And I, I think the, any stone carver who lives full time in New York. Um, uh, is more committed to being in New York than to carving mm. stuff. Oh, that would definitely change <laughs> the know. kind of work you produce. Yeah, so. yeah. No, I mean, I it just—it's too restrictive to mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So, uh, things sort of evolve very organically here.
0: My name is Gabriela Garcia Stolfe, a rising senior at American University, where I major in Communication Studies and minor in International Relations. Here at The Creative Process, I'm the Social Justice and Community Initiatives podcaster. Finding an artist, a piece, or a moment that deeply resonates with us is one of the many beautiful experiences of being alive. As humans, we usually use words to express what we're feeling, but it's often the case that these words cannot fully transmit exactly what we're feeling. Thus, expression forms that exist outside the bounds of words, like men in sculptures, evoke a deeper reaction within ourselves. When resonating with a work of art, whether it be a more contemporary adaptation of the word art or the infinite art that exists around us on this planet, words will never do the feelings justice. But how fortunate we are to be humans, hosts of this complicated neurological system that causes real physical reactions to stimuli. As Menon and Mia discussed in the first half of the podcast, there's something so perfectly mystifying about our connections to the outside world through our bodies getting goosebumps every time you listen to your favorite song, or visualizing an exact moment in time just from a faint smell. These are constant reminders about how close we are to the natural world. Our proximity to nature is a lot closer than we think. In fact, Menin explains how we are really just material. Our bones are made from the same thing marble and limestone are made of. This sentiment is one that weaves its way in and out of my life, and I'm sure the same can be said for many artists and the general population. Following this train of thought, if all life forms on Earth are made from the same matter, then we are more than similar to the natural world, we're exactly like it. The sun, our loved ones, the ladybug that landed on your shoulder, the sea, outer space, and even stones. Understanding this helps to bridge the more modern gap that has been constructed between humans and the Earth. And to apply it a bit further, bridging this gap allows us to immerse ourselves deeper in the expression of this connection. Much like working with granite to create new life forms essentially, as Menon has. The majority of my expression manifests in working with string. Much like Menon feels a link between himself, his stone, and his sculptures, I feel quite a similar emotion towards string. There are many well-known examples of this intertwined worlds of string and life, probably the most famous being the three fates of Greek mythology. As the string is spun, drawn out, and cut we very well can understand that these are indications of birth, life, and death. Another example is that of East Asian folklore, the Red String of Fate, where two people are predestined to be together. Using these seemingly simple materials that exist in our world, like string or stone, unveil what it means to truly be alive and to create. Menon unpacks that habitually, his narrative with stone has been to compromise the general perspective of stone sculpture. Making something we perceive as dense be hollow, something that captures light from the outside, illuminates from the inside, or making a hard material seem fleshy and alive. This type of challenge in creating something is what I've noticed in my own narrative with string. As an embroiderer, I have a vast sea of what kinds of designs I could pursue, but when it comes to making things look alive, it not only has been an artistic challenge but also a personal challenge. Recently, I've been working on a design of a swamp witch, and in the design, she's surrounded by water and the ripples move around her and clash with ripples coming from the opposite ends of the swamp. Of course, I have a base sketch on my material that I follow, but this piece caused me to drift from the sketch and almost see the design as living. I would ask myself, where would real water move in this moment? And the more I asked myself that, the more I drifted from the sketch. Not only did this practice force me to let go of the idea of perfectionism, but it connected me to my design. My hand, my finger, guided the string over and under the material, over and under, over and under, much like a ripple's line rhythm. The more I did this, the more my design came to life. The more the water was living, the more significant this piece felt to me. This was the first time I experienced this kind of narrative men in in my own practice. As artists who both dedicate our hands to our artwork, the physicality of this method quite literally fastens us to our pieces, to those who experience our work and ultimately to the earth itself.
2: You lived and you worked in New York and mm-hmm. then you, your work was different. than when you came to Bethlehem and the wider Connecticut community, how did your work then change?
1: Uh, well, so I'd, I'd in fact been pretty nomadic mm-hmm. uh, through you know, living in Paris, New York. Oh yes,
3: Paris. Italy
1: imagine, yes, and yeah. never, never really establishing a, a base, uh-huh. and so this, this, allowed for that for one to get uh, any work that hadn't been mm-hmm. placed somewhere in the same place, and um,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and um, you know, and the upside to that was to really uh, be able to review, um, you know, uh, an adult life's uh, um, amount of. Learning and information and travel and everything—that's um, so. It's kind of allowed me, number one, to regroup, mm-hmm. and um, and it took every restriction I had away uh, for working. Uh, there was no scale problem; I could work on any scale that I want mm-hmm. uh, up here. And you know, and eventually, um, even patronage—like uh, patrons become friends, friends mm-hmm. become patrons, um, or not. But I. Uh, um didn't have a need for a gallery after mm-hmm. a while or i didn't yeah. have a need to share my budgets with anybody because nobody was doing anything for me mm-hmm. um and everything was sort of happening organically that mm-hmm. way and uh and it wasn't necessarily an intentional um middle finger to the gallery world that there was just no need for it you know yeah. so I'm, I'm not uh necessarily against it but it's not kind of for me it's not worth the effort I don't work in that mode you know I I like every project to sort of be like a journey Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and which is it's funny you know my my wife is a travel writer Mm -hmm. so she goes on her journeys and Mm -hmm. I go on mine and and it's kind of a nice uh, MO to to, um, uh, you know think of things as endeavors like and you know so the scale of A lot of this work, there are three, four-month projects that um, uh, are pretty. You're all in Mm -hmm. in every possible way. You're uh, committed physically, and um, and you know you have to almost be monolithic in your thinking for a while. Although Mm -hmm. I will say the the brute labor allows Mm -hmm. you to drift and conceive of new ideas. In fact, I think I may be at my sharpest Mm -hmm. when I'm running at this big saw. uh, that you have to hold up and it's exhausting, but somehow mm-hmm. that exhaustion uh, allows you to think very clearly.
2: I understand you know. very much. You could do mm-hmm. a point of where you're kind of worn out mm-hmm. and then the solution presents itself? Yeah. Like the st- I don't know if it's too much to say the stone speaks to you, but...
1: Oh, yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, I have a lot of painter friends mm-hmm. who uh, will go to their studio mm-hmm. and do fuck all for like five hours and then all of a sudden there's going to be like a two-hour Period after they've exhausted themselves, not getting anything done, but like boom, there's.
2: But they were doing This production, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that's. Um, I I actually don't have that luxury because there's enough. Uh, brute work to rough things out. Yeah. Uh, but that's sort of my thinking. Period is when I'm, um, you know, uh, running these big tools and and. Uh, there's less thinking in the process, but more thinking ahead of how something's gonna. Uh, be right. finished, or even the next three pieces can be conceived while you're doing this uh, brute labor.
2: Yes, yeah, so as we talk about palabolas and uh, and also you say you're like human-centered work. It's interesting mm-hmm. because you have these like uh, two quite notable dance companies based here yeah, in this small yeah. community. Mm-hmm. But I think about because we did interviews with about their rehearsal process and or just like things have to come together. You have a show in like two yeah. weeks. Each, yeah, the pressure, uh, it's very stimulating.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, in fact. And, you know, deadlines, uh, Mm -hmm. they command you to do something more than be on time. They kind Mm -hmm. of, they they demand your thinking to find resolution in something, you know. I think finishing something is is one of the most difficult things, I think, as a sculptor because uh, there are all these possibilities of finishing in a different way.
2: So I also am interested in so primarily you're doing a lot a lot of work in the area, but as you were working and for public commissions in different countries and different landscapes how how are you responding to it
1: um, yeah that's a good question because I mean a lot of times something will go in uh, for practical reasons before the The dressing of the landscape is is uh, happens around it and a lot of times the landscape will be resolved and I'll be placing something and I think you if you know the destination you're thinking about that while you carve Um, and and not as a matter of design but just in Mm -hmm. feeling what its context and its home is gonna be you know Mm -hmm. you're I mean a lot of people make that analogy of giving a baby up for adoption uh, when uh, you place a piece, Mm -hmm.
3: uh,
1: if you're that connected to it. Uh, But I don't think it's that so much. I do think it is, uh, um, you know, its identity Uh is partly defined by its uh, context. And, you know, I think a lot of sculptures are ruined by their context. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of contexts are ruined by Crappy sculptures, yeah. and you know. So, it, but it is it is that kind of uh, collaborative thinking that.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it's interesting that sculpture and it can be changed. How how seasons, how weather changes. Mm-hmm. That is nice. Oh yeah, no, that.
1: very much. Yeah. yeah. What's funny? I mean, even last night uh, inside the cave, the mm-hmm. large uh, ember piece was lit up, mm-hmm. and um, you know, you can have a clunky form lying down on it, or a friend of mine's uh, wife, who's a dancer, I lay guess. on it and, and the silhouette. Uh, and then
2: shadows make. The
1: yeah, yeah, and I do, I do yeah. see a lot of these things as uh, the niche for the statuary of mm-hmm. living people to, to move and, and perform or whatever they, uh, or just sit, like a, <clears throat> a chair is a seated figure and it's, but it's even something else when somebody's actually sitting in it, and.
2: Uh, and I like to think about what. So you're a teacher, and how, as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, and what, which teachers have been important to you, or which artists, or maybe they're um, not known, they're not named in terms yeah. of sculpture, have been important to you?
1: Well, I'm I'm mostly an autodidact, mm-hmm. uh, but I, it, but not in a fierce way like I I wish I might have had a mentor it would Mm -hmm. have made things more fluid early on at this point uh, I'm glad I didn't but I also I think I I sought out older sculptors when I was in my 20s to for the sake of dialogue and conversation and, and and a lot of these are people who are um going to end up in our sculpture park or making yeah. a stone piece with the... Oh,
2: this mess you can bring, bring yeah. them back. Yeah, it's a yeah. nice
1: full circle I yeah. think. And, uh, and you know, again, they're and not... Some
2: of those sculptures are, we should say. What's that? The... Some of those sculptures are that we should say who would be in the park. Who had been... Oh, well, like
1: uh, William comedy. Tucker had yeah. a studio next to me yeah. 30 years ago uh-huh. and um, and I think is really one of the great uh, innovative modelers mm-hmm. uh, of his time. Um, James Searles, I've known his work for 30 years. I haven't known him that long, but uh, even knowing somebody's work is, and admiring it is a form of mentorship. Of course. Uh, How think, did you know. do that? How does this work? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, that, that applies to dead people, too. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of my mentors uh, w- weren't them. alive uh, yes. you know, after I was born, but, uh-huh. um, but yeah, conversations. Noguchi, I was oh. able to have a lot of conversations with him uh-huh. uh, as he was in Italy a lot when I was there, mm-hmm. um, and also was a very close friend of, a, an, I would say, close to a mentor, is a, a Uruguayan sculptor, Gonzalo Fonseca, okay. who we also ho- hope will end up in the park. Right. Um, and he uh, uh, and Noguchi were very close, mm-hmm. so I ended up being the fly on the wall mm-hmm. uh, of uh, a lot of conversations okay. too.
2: Who's it? It's so nice. And then there's just these things that you see. But in your, as you, what kind of teacher are you teach at the School of Visual Arts? Is oh, no, the New York Academy. New York Academy, yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm getting...
3: Oh,
1: yeah, no, I'm, I'm not, uh,
2: The New York Academy. Um, so what kinds of, how do you help your students find what they're doing?
1: Well, see, well, fortunately, I taught uh, art history mm-hmm. there. And so... Uh, yeah, we all propagandize a little mm-hmm. bit um, yeah. and or put our two cents yeah. in or, or present comparisons and opportunities mm-hmm. to maybe uh, poke mm-hmm. at mainstream art history. Mm-hmm. Um, or we just teach it in an academic way. Mm-hmm. And uh, our, our particular course was really to kind of force feed art literacy mm-hmm. on uh, people who are basically, I mean essentially going to the best trade school in the yeah. world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you know, developing those skills. But I think, and it's become a much more conceptual place mm-hmm. um, than what it was 20 years ago, for example. But um, you know, I think there were about five art history professors who mm-hmm. were also artists and could teach art history in an applied way, mm-hmm. and also keep that interesting for this particular brand of student. And um, and you know, so we all sort of had a different reading list, a different. Um, you know, goal of how to pack in mm. a degree of art literacy, if but not to embarrass the school. <laughs> you know, I mean, if yes. you have an MFA, mm-hmm. you should be uh, well-read and have good theory developed and have opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in an undergrad, you should have skills and a couple of ideas. But mm-hmm. I think you know the whole point of having an MFA is to mm. um, is to um, <laughs> Uh, you know be a professional when you come out you know, whatever that means So
2: you studied uh, history while Mm -hmm. you were drawn to history art history or history at Princeton? History, but I mean I'd
1: been spoon fed art history, my my dad was a a composer but um, every bit as uh, literate in uh, other fields Mm -hmm. and um, uh, and, you know that too, like uh, I had you know, parades of musicians going through our living room all mm-hmm. through my youth. And so to hear that kind of dialogue, even to sort of know how to debate mm-hmm. um, uh, about aesthetic things was kind of in uh, uh, Spoonfed as well. Yeah, so. This is so
2: important. I think that's some, one of the things that the students are really looking for if they haven't had that um, you know, privilege of being having grown up around um, artists or, or, mm-hmm. or very creative people. Who, it's just to, to be around that. That's so exciting. Yeah. And And know it's interesting that your your father was a composer because you think about as I speak to composers and we have some uh-huh. mutual friends who are that. Mm-hmm. Um. They feel music in like a physical way. Yeah. And you are making the very physical. Yeah. But as yeah, they speak yeah. about it, they see it as a three dimensional.
1: Right, music's ethereal. It exists in the ether. And And, and I don't know how they remember
2: it. I don't know how, I guess they sometimes can see it, like, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You seem so theoretical to me. (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, I guess, I mean, that's my uh, that's my lame version of being a rebel, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) To 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 make something
1: concrete and uh, objective. But
2: But then as I think about sculpture, it is something that changes as you look at it. It has a sense of this time, like music does, because you have so many angles of it. Yes, it's not a oh, that's it. I see it, and that's it.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. But even even some of that, some of the artists I might admire, mm-hmm. um, kind of push that expectation away, like that it needs to be as important from every angle. Like I don't mm-hmm. believe that. I, mm-hmm. I, I and, you know, this is this whole dialogue. Uh, uh, my closer colleagues would. Mm-hmm rib me about but like mm-hmm. you know Rodin it's important that that's completely three-dimensional. Modardo Rosso, who's a contemporary of his was completely frontal I mean, they're mm-hmm. almost <clears throat> the value of relief mattered more than mm-hmm. the three-dimensionality of things. Um, so yeah I mean that and when you put something in a context there's usually a, a front and a back mm-hmm. and angles and sides and stuff so I kind of shunned that whole um, you know that whole holistic
2: oh, okay. uh, I didn't mean approach to, to it no about. no
1: no but i mean that uh, the the block matters
2: so yes so, so, so thank you so much for you know sharing your insights in this and i guess i'm just thinking about you know this educational initiative and we've been talking about you know ancient forms of art you know our connection to the past importance the mm-hmm. of history and as you think to the future you know what is. What have the arts given you, and why, you know, what are their the importance going forward? Uh,
1: well, you know, I, I think, you know, history is moving cycles, mm-hmm. and I think we are definitely at a point in history that might have topped out in, in terms of, you know, the questioning what, uh, what it is to express oneself, what it is to be on a, <clears throat> A journey. What a lifetime of making art means, versus like a uh, inspired moment. Uh, you know. So I, you know, it's a good time to ask that question mm-hmm. as I'm a, a middle aged guy. Oh, I uh, was thinking about no, that? no, but I, but For I, all of us. yeah, no, I, uh, it, the, the, I realize now like the power of reflection or having a big arsenal of ideas and experiences. Whereas when I was, you know, in my twenties, uh, I would look to a fellow my age and say like you know shoot me if I get that old, mm-hmm. so I you know I, it, <laughs> it's not that I'm like ah these stupid kids, but I I, I do think um, you know a lot of self-important um, uh, notions kind of uh, that have gotten in the way of real productivity have have been uh, swept away and and a focus on. Um, you know our own particular vision matters, okay. and also really standing by uh, my belief that you know an artist needs to make his own work. Yes. Otherwise, we become what we've been rebelling against. We become a, a, an industry, or we become a a factory. I yes. mean, I, I actually don't think an artist should make too much work. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I think it's easy to overexpose yourself. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Uh, even if you're having some or great,
2: repeat yourself. Yeah. Great
1: critical moment. Mm-hmm. Um, one should know by now. Like the the audience is fickle, mm-hmm. and um, you know to and to find your audience. You know mm-hmm. is is important. I mean, it hopefully mine's more about the landscape. Yeah. Uh, and the landscape itself is an audience too. Like <laughs> they mm-hmm. they the landscape experiences your piece mm-hmm. far more than people do, and uh, to even have that relationship in a time when the planet may be in peril um, yeah. is is something to be reminded of.
2: Yeah, you yeah. remind us of the beauty of nature, and then your your pieces have
0: give us that focal point to experience it, to meditate on. Yeah, hopefully. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Gabriela Garcia-Solfi and Catherine Vasiliev. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolus and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.